0: You know, we were joking last week, I was looking at the 10-day forecast and knew it was gonna be pretty nice today, and I I realized, Tim, every time you preach, it's like nasty outside, (laughs) but every time I preach, uh, it's beautiful, which are the only two beautiful Sunday mornings we've had uh, so far with the Shawnee campus. But anyway, I am excited to open God's word with you. Uh, Even this tough text, uh, this last time we are talking about sex and marriage and divorce, Uh, I'm pretty excited about it. I hope you are too, but let's go to God in prayer uh, and ask for His help, Father. Thank you for this morning, for a beautiful morning. It's just a reminder of Your goodness, and God, it's um, it's good to be together as Your church. And thank you for Your Word, for the gift of Your Word. I pray that um, where I speak Your words after You this morning, that Your Spirit um, would be active in making clear and um, and bringing conviction and shedding light on the areas of our hearts uh, where we need to repent, where um, you need to be at work. So Lord, I do pray that we would have soft hearts uh, and open minds this morning as we hear your word. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of my favorite things about being a pastor so far in my young uh, pastoral ministry career is getting to do weddings. And because I'm, because I'm pretty new at this, the only people that ask me to do their weddings are uh, close family and friends. So it's really been sweet so far. Uh, I've done two, uh, and those were great moments for me, highlights my pastoral ministry. Uh, and, and one of the reasons is because I get to stand front and center with really the best seat in the house at a wedding. I mean, it's a beautiful, usually it's a beautiful ceremony, right? And you're standing here watching two people commit their lives to one another before God. It really is a beautiful thing. And I remember, you know, my, our wedding day was almost seven years ago. Uh, it, and like many, it was a beautiful start to our marriage. Uh, you know, we we really enjoyed that celebration with the people that love us the most on our wedding day, but uh, as the saying goes, right, the honeymoon doesn't last forever, right? The honeymoon phase, I can say that because Beth isn't here this morning, so I can, there's a lot of things I can say this morning because she's not here, uh, but the honeymoon phase doesn't last, and, and don't get me wrong, um, we have a... Great marriage. I love my wife. We are very happy. We, we may uh, be happier now than we've ever been. And in fact, we're leaving. We're to spend the week together, just the two of us, uh, on a baby moon. I don't know if you've heard of, the, heard of this thing. It's, uh, it's really our last time, just the two of us, before our life changes forever in May. Uh, hopefully May, uh, hopefully not too much sooner than that. Uh, but we're really excited. We love being married. But here's the thing. Marriage is really uh, hard. It's, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. I'll tell you that. On, on the day when I was standing uh, at the altar committing my life to her, it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be at that moment. And I don't want to say, I don't want to make it sound like it's harder than, than other stations of life and seasons of life, but marriage is hard. And maybe the toughest thing is being confronted with just how selfish you are. Right? There was this moment uh, when I experienced, in reality, what I what I committed on the day, when I, ex, I expressed on the day of our wedding, and that is that marriage is not about me. There was a day, a moment when I realized wow, when I make marriage about me, when Beth makes marriage about her, it's really trouble. It's bad news, right? And whether, whether you're married here this morning or not, we need to understand the simple truth from 1 Corinthians 7 this morning it's this marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about you. Your marriage is not about you. And that's where we're going this morning. We're talking about marriage and sex and divorce. Yay, right? This is a, this is a fun one. Um, and I, I, this is the last of our sex sermons. We won't talk about sex again after this. I promise, I think, uh, I'm, maybe. Yeah, I'm not going to promise that, actually. But this is our last. This is the last of our little three-week excursions on sex. And I, and I want to say this up front. I want to start here. There are a number of ways that this sermon could be really hard to hear. And there are a number of ways that this sermon is going to be really hard to give. Because for many, including me, this is the most personal of the sex sermons. It feels like I'm coming into your bedroom and meddling with your sex life. And even saying that may make some of you a little bit uncomfortable. But that's, that's where we're going this morning. We all need this message about sex and marriage but it can be a painful one. Some want to be married and are not. Some are married, but for whatever reason, various reasons, cannot be sexually active in their marriage. Some have been married in the past and are working through the pain of separation or the pain of loss. There can be lots of pain around this subject, and I want to name that before we start. But this this message is for all of us. If you're single, this sermon is for you. We all need a realistic, yet glorious view of marriage. And I, I'm asking, I invite you to stay present in this sermon. And we'll be talking about singleness uh, more directly in a couple weeks, and that message will be for all of us, too. We're one body, and we need each other in this church. In fact, singles can often see problems, and I've seen this to be true in my, with my single friends. They can see problems in the lives of their married friends that... that that I am blind to, right? So single folks, please stay present here and hear what Paul has to say about marriage so you can speak that into the lives of your, mar- of your married friends. And students, this message is for you too. Your view of marriage affects how you date or don't date now. It affects how you marry or don't marry in the future, and it affects how you do or don't think about your parents' relationship right now. And some of you have experienced a devastation of a broken marriage, and we'll talk about that this morning, too. I, I think we can all agree on this, though. the world needs more great marriages. The world needs more great marriages. Now, this isn't a marriage seminar. I'm definitely no expert. My goodness, that's ridiculous. Uh, and in fact, I became acutely aware of that this week as I was prepping. Um, I need this message too, and this isn't paul this isn't Paul's seven easy steps to a perfect marriage and a great sex life, right? That's not what this message is, though I'm sure someone has written that sermon somewhere that's not what this one is. But Paul is giving us some valuable teaching about what makes for a great marriage. Marriage is not about you, that's his main point. I need this, our children need this, our workplaces need this, our church needs this message. there are three things that if we actually believed if we actually believed and lived out, I think would change everything about our marriages. And that's this. Marriage is about giving, not getting. It's about holiness, not happiness. And it's about forgiveness, not failure. That's where we're going this morning. So first, marriage is about giving, not getting. If you got a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 1. If you need a Bible... Uh, there's, there are Bibles on the back. This is an open invitation. If you don't have a Bible or own one, go grab one of those and take it with you. We'd, we'd, those, that's what they're there for. But 1 Corinthians 7, 1. And Paul's changing gears at this point in the letter. He moves from what he's heard, so rumors and reports of what's happening in the church, to what they're actually uh, raising to him and what they've written to him. So look at verse 1. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and they wrote this, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with the woman. So while marriage is the primary focus of this passage, Paul hones in right, right from the get-go. He starts talking about sex. He goes right there. And as we've already talked about, sex is the beautiful act that signifies and establishes oneness in marriage. Right? It, it is this picture of two people being made one. It's a uniting act. It makes one flesh out of two. But some of the Corinthians weren't sold on the goodness of this, even in marriage. They weren't sold on the goodness of sex. Now, what's up with that? Well, the Corinthians were influenced by a a Greek dualism that split the world in two, basically into the the physical world, the material world, and the spiritual. And in in some ways, they believed that rejecting the physical material would achieve for them a, a higher plane of spirituality, it would make them more spiritual. And this played itself out in two ways. Uh, if the body is worthless, it doesn't matter what we do with it, right? It doesn't matter. And that led to what we saw two weeks ago, which is having, having sex with prostitutes is no big deal. So that's one extreme, right? And that's obviously a problem. Uh, but at the same time, viewing the body as less than the spirit can lead to another extreme, which is thinking that physical pleasure is actually dirty, Uh, that that sex should be refused even in marriage. And that's another problem, and one that hasn't actually gone away since the circulation of this letter. That's still a common way that that some think about the world and that the physical world is less than the spirit. But Paul has a different word for sex in marriage in particular. Look at verse 2. He says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So Paul's not... He's clearly not anti-sex here. He says, if you're married, have sex with your spouse. Uh, that have husbands, have your wives. Wives, have your husbands. And this is, it's actually stunning, the mutuality uh, that we'll see throughout the text. He makes a point of, of addressing husbands and wives both. There's a stunning mutuality. Uh, and he says this that, so that it will keep us, keep those having sex from being tempted to find it somewhere else, namely, as he's pointing back, namely to the prostitutes that they were visiting before. So he says, have your wives, have your husbands. And he says this because sex is a gift from God. Paul is for sex because God is for sex, it's his idea. I mean, if we, if we were to go back to Genesis two, we'd see that God's design is for married folks to be having sex within the confines of a covenant marriage. It's to be enjoyed as a precious gift but it's not just a gift from God to you, it's a gift to your spouse. Marriage is not about you, and your sex life is not about you. You don't belong to you anymore, that's what we, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. This, even this, what, what should be the one thing that we can really hang on to that's ours, does not belong to you anymore. You belong first to Jesus, uh, and second, Paul makes the argument, argument that you belong to your spouse. Look at verses three and four. He says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have the authority over her body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is, get, this is really heating up here, right? We're talking about uh, conjugal rights and duty and authority. I mean, this is steamy stuff, right? Um, you know, Paul, Paul's reasoning for why you should be having sex is actually very radical. Even if it's not uh, very sexy, it's very radical. He's saying something here that, you know, it's hard to overstate how offended every man in that congregation would have been to hear Paul to hear Paul's words here. In that day, a wife's body belonged to her husband, period. Full stop, no question. Not the other way around. And the fact that Paul begins and ends with the husband, it says that the man's body belongs to her, that would have been culturally uh, unthinkable. And there's stunning mutuality, again, throughout this text, that the marriage covenant means giving up whatever rights you had, whatever rights you think you have, that this belongs to you as a married couple when you enter into the marriage covenant, you're giving up those rights. You know, when, when Beth and I got married, we used to joke um, that we would slip in a line into our, into our vows that is, what's mine is hers, and what's hers is hers, right? We, we would make that joke, and uh, you know, honestly, this is pretty true, uh, except, except for my golf clubs. That's the one thing that she doesn't, she couldn't care less about. Uh, but we laugh because it's absurd. Right? That's, a, that's an absurd notion. We know that's not how it works. Or maybe, maybe it is. Uh, I don't know. But marriage is meant to be reciprocal. right? It's, it's not about you. It's about giving, not getting. It's a way of imaging God. Sex, in particular, is a way of imaging the God who has given himself completely to us and for us. Sex, ultimately, is about the glory of God. And when we make it about ourselves, we miss it entirely. Of course, this is the design, the way it's supposed to be, but we know that because of sin, we live in a world that, uh, where things are not the way they're supposed to be. And if you're married, or even if you're not, this is probably true in your bedroom, right? Sex in marriage isn't always an act of mutual love. We use it in other ways, We've gotten this wrong, and there are countless ways that we are broken sexually and that we've been wounded sexually. We all have baggage, uh, whether from our past or in our present. Sometimes sex is used to manipulate, to punish, to reward, to bribe. And Paul's speaking directly to this use of sex in this passage. His command in verse 5 is actually really strong. He says, do not deprive. And, and the word "deprive" there is what, it's the word that he uses back in chapter six of the guys who are ripping each other off and suing each other. He says, do not defraud, do not defraud your spouse. He's saying, don't cheat your spouse out of what is rightfully theirs, which is really, I mean, it's shocking language to think of defrauding your spouse. And if you're withholding sex from your partner I know this is complex, and it feels, it really feels like I'm meddling here, but if you're withholding sex, Paul says you're misusing God's design for sex in marriage. If you're married, you should be willfully, willfully, you shouldn't be willfully withholding sex from your spouse. The only allowance that Paul gives for abstinence from sex in marriage has several caveats. Look at it in verse 5. He says, Do not deprive each other, do not defraud one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul says, abstinence needs to be mutual, it needs to be temporary, and and it needs to be purposeful or even uh, devotional. Otherwise, you open yourself up to Satan's temptation. And demanding, demanding in in the bedroom can be just as harmful, uh, emotionally, physically. Paul Paul is not giving license to ask for whatever you want, whenever you want it. He's not asking, he's not giving license to ask for things that makes your marriage partner uncomfortable. It's okay to say, not that, or not tonight, Right? Sexual pressure isn't self-giving love, it's self-centered lust. And and please hear this too, this passage must never be used as a cover for any kind of sexual aggression or physical abuse. If there is physical abuse, um, call the police. (laughs) This should not be used as a text, and it has been used as a place to point back and say, no, see, I, I own my spouse. I can do whatever I want, but that's not, that's not mutual self-giving love. So if there's abuse, please hear, please hear that Uh, this is not a cover for sexual aggression. Now, this feels like, it feels like it got, I feel it, it feels like it got really heavy there for a second. The, The point, the point is this, sex is supposed to be a gift to your spouse. Does this mean that it's always going to be perfect? Not by a long shot, not at all. Uh, but if you're able, and again, I want to be sensitive there. I know there are, there are situations when we are not able to be sexually active in our marriage, and that's hard. Um, but if you're able, you should be working on your sex life. You should be working on it. Practice might not make perfect, but it, it does make progress, right? It should make progress. Uh, and, and by progress, I mean aiming to please your spouse and using sex as a, as a gift to them. In fact, if you miss this, if you miss the the fact that you can use you can engage in sex in a way that's pleasing to your spouse, you miss probably the the most pleasurable thing about sex and marriage, and that is getting to please your spouse. That's the it's the greatest gift of marriage. Pleasing your spouse is is the best, right? That's that's when, that's the way it's by design. That's the way God made it. That when we give ourselves fully to another, it's it's good. Sex is nothing if it's not a gift to your spouse. It is, by design, self-giving. And it's good for you. And it's good for your marriage. Sex is a gift for your marriage. And this is so important. Sex is not an end in itself. It's not, it's not the end-all, be-all. It, it has a purpose in your marriage. Uh, ultimately, the purpose is the glory of God. But there, there are other subordinate purposes that sex can serve in your marriage. One, it unites. And our natural tendency, uh, because of the fall, is to pull apart, even in marriage, even in the most intimate of all your human relationships, our natural tendency is to pull apart, to be driven away from each other. And I love how Tim and Kathy Keller summarize this in The Meaning of Marriage. And if you haven't read The Meaning of Marriage, I highly commend that to you, it's a great resource, it's a great understanding of marriage, of biblical marriage. But I love how they summarize this, and it's a little long, but they summarize really everything I've said so well. Uh, They said, indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful, God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you, and you must not say, you must not use sex to say anything less. So according to the Bible, he goes on, a covenant is necessary for sex. We've seen that. It creates a place of security for vulnerability and intimacy. But though a marriage covenant is necessary for sex, sex is also necessary for the maintenance of the covenant. And this is the, this is the part I love. It, it is your covenant renewal service. Have you, have you ever seen a couple renew their vows, maybe after 20, 25, 30 years? It's, it's common for couples to have a ceremony where they renew their vows to one another. And imagine if this is how we viewed sex and marriage. Every act is a restating of your vows to one another. I am yours. You are mine. For better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death to us part. And this is why we should never let this area go, because we need to be reminding each other of these vows we've made, this commitment. This is a way that sex can be a gift for your marriage, that it tangibly reminds you that you are one with your spouse. But it doesn't just unite. It also reveals. It can uncover hidden things in your relationship uh, that that may go unnoticed. I I am a firm believer that sex is, in, in many ways, one of the best barometers for the overall health of your marriage. I know that's been true for me. I mean, the the things going on in my heart that otherwise wouldn't be seen, when I am fully exposed and vulnerable before my wife, there's nothing that could be hidden. Sex can be a good way to reveal. And it also focuses your affections where they should be focused, right? Paul's concern about sexual misconduct is all over this text. And he's saying you should have your spouse, have your wife, have your husband uh, in order to keep from trying to find sexual fulfillment somewhere else. And, of course, this is, it's not a silver bullet, right? Um, sex doesn't take away the lusts of our heart. But a deeply intimate sex life in marriage can go a long way toward fighting temptation. Uh, which brings us to the last word about sex, finally. Uh, this is it. Sex is a gift among other gifts. And So Paul focuses attention uh, to another audience in verse 7. Look at verse 7. He says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So sex is a gift, but it's not the gift Right? Marriage and, and with it sex, they are gifts among other gifts. And to miss the middle ground that Paul is walking here would be to miss his, his point entirely in this chapter, which will come into focus a little more as we continue walking through uh, chapter 7, which is remain as you are, stay as you are. And we'll address this in more detail in two weeks, but it's worth noting two things from, uh, this, from these verses here this morning. One, Paul has a very high view of singleness, He's got a high view of singleness, and he prefers marriage over strong sexual desires that cannot be controlled. Right, those are the two things that we can say. Why is that? Well, because acting, I mean, this is not new. We've touched on this many times, but acting on sexual desires outside of marriage is disastrous. It just leads to ruin. It's worth repeating, sex is only a good gift within the covenant confines of marriage. Like Tim's analogy last week, you can only drive a car into a lake uh, for so long, right? Eventually, it's going to sink. Eventually, it's, go, it's going to stop. It, it, doesn't, it hasn't been designed to do that. That's not the purpose for which it was made. And we can't go outside of God's design for, for sex and marriage and still flourish. It's going to lead to ruin, this is one reason, this is one reason why, and I'm gonna go here because I'm passionate about this, this is one reason why pornography is so destructive. It trains you to take and not to give. It conditions you towards selfishness, towards isolation, and it deadens your ability to connect with another. Pornography will destroy your marriage. Ro- romance novels will destroy your marriage. Lust, lust of any kind will destroy your marriage. And I wish I I could say this uh, just because I've read some good books about it or uh, because I have some great head knowledge, but I can't. I know this this to be true intimately. Lust, by definition, takes. Real, Real sex, by definition, gives. If you take there, you will take here. You will take in your marriage, and it will destroy it. It will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage. And listen, we all, need, we all need God's grace here. Satan will do anything he can to get you to have sex before marriage. And then he'll do everything he can to keep you from it once you are married. We all need to live out God's design if we're going to truly flourish. So let's pause here and see how, how can we bring this home. The application can't just be, hey, married people, go have sex. That's not the application for this morning. So ask yourself this question. It is one application, maybe, but uh, for, let's broaden it out a little bit. How can you give yourself away today? How can you give yourself away this week? And married folks, don't, li- don't limit this to the bedroom, and singles, don't limit this to the, to the married, right? How? How can we give ourselves away? This is what the Christian life is all about, right? Joy-filled self, uh, at the heart of of the story, the story that we live out is self-sacrifice, self-giving. How can you become someone who gives themselves away? Jesus gave up everything for us. And he died so that we can be givers, not, not getters. And he also died to make us holy, and that's our second point this morning. Marriage is about holiness, not happiness. Marriage is about making us holy, not making us happy. And my greatest need is not uh, a, a perfect marriage or a really good sex life, right? My greatest need, uh, and, and often that's the that's the way it's portrayed, right? I mean, that's what we, that's what culture would have us believe, uh, is that marriage is ultimately about happiness about finding that person who's going to make you truly, fully satisfied and happy. But I, I believe scripture shows us a better way, that it's not my, our needs are not really happiness, but holiness. We need to be like Jesus. And if that's true, then maybe we can agree with what the Bible has to say about divorce. right? And thinking back on the last couple sermons, it, it makes sense that Paul brings up divorce here. right? I mean, th- think about the marriages in this church. There are, some really, there are some marriages in some tough spots in this church. Uh, and Look with me at verse 10. Paul, Paul shifts his focus back to the married couples. And he says, to the married I give this charge, uh, not I but the Lord. And Paul, Paul's simply paraphrasing Jesus here. He says, the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, if we, if we trust everything Paul has said up to this point about sexuality, this, this shouldn't be a surprise, right? We are united in marriage, one flesh, two people become one flesh, and no one can ununite unite you, not, uh, not even you. We do not have the authority to do that. Marriage is meant for life. It's a lifelong covenant. And I could launch into the statistics about marriage in this country and in the church, But most of you have heard all that, right? There are actually statistics that I find equally as disturbing. Uh, Time Magazine published an article last summer uh, about millennials, which is my generation, and and what we uh, view, how we think about sex, or how we think about marriage, sorry, so we're not talking about sex anymore. Uh, What we think about marriage. Um, The article points out that the majority of millennials surveyed believe that marriage shouldn't be a permanent choice with one person for one lifetime. Instead, it, it should be a choice that we can reevaluate uh, every few years or take part in with different partners uh, to fulfill different needs uh, at different times in our lives. Um, they, they want to rewrite the terms of marriage. Here's the quote. Um, in total, nearly half of all those surveyed, ages 18 to 49, and 50, over half of millennials, 53%, thought marriage vows should be renewed, and nearly 40% said they believed the till death do us part, should be abolished. In other words, beta marriages, right? Test marriages. Unions that you can test, de glitch, work out kinks, or simply abandon course without consequence. Something you can try out without consequence. Right? Beth and I used to joke, and I realized. You know, we used to joke about marriage a lot, which I don't know what that says. But uh, we, used to, we used to joke that we signed a five-year deal on our wedding day. And that at five years, we would reevaluate that uh, when the time came, which it's, it's funny. We, at five years, we did, actually. We made a little contract. We re-signed it. And we thought it was hilarious because it's absurd, right? But now the millennials have gone and ruined my joke because this – it was funny. Uh, but na- it was funny to us, anyway. Now it's less funny because this is really the way – that some are beginning to view marriage. And look, on the one hand, I get it, right? Many haven't witnessed, much less experienced, a marriage worth emulating, right? Maybe their parents fell out of love, or they went through a, a, a tragic divorce, or they never, maybe, maybe they never knew their mom or dad, or their mom and dad stuck together in a miserable marriage just out of duty or uh, for the kids, right? But this article says, because marriages aren't working, uh, we should just t- we should take away the permanence of marriage, right? We should get rid of this kind of lifelong commitment, because clearly that's not working, right? So let's just get rid of it. But uh, I would argue they're messing with the wrong part of marriage, because right? permanence is at the heart of this institution. It, if marriage is no longer for life, um, I, I, I don't know, I'm not, I don't think it's any longer marriage. In fact, I don't know what you would have. You Just have some kind of contract. Uh, what, what we need, instead of messing with the permanence, what we need is a better goal. Because aiming at happiness, aiming at personal fulfillment, it's just not going to cut it. What happens at the first sign of real trouble in your marriage, of real, serious trouble... What will you do if if you're just committed to happiness? What will you do when your spouse really blows it? And your sp- your spouse is really going to blow it. Spouses here, we have we have blown it. What happens when life crashes in? When when terrible things happen, How, what will you what will your response be? Happiness uh, as the goal just it just can't keep marriage going. In fact, uh, Shooting at permanence, just saying, I'm just, my, our goal is to have a long, permanent marriage. That won't even cut it. It's the wrong goal. But a commitment to, to holiness, it gives you what you need to weather the storms. You can stay with it even when it's hard because the difficulty of life is actually accomplishing for you the purpose of marriage. It's making you holy. That's how, that's how we become more like Christ, is in. Times of suffering and hardness. Great marriages aim at holiness, not at happiness. Now, let me be clear: divorce doesn't always stem from people just aiming to be happier. I, you know, I, I am acutely aware that it is much more complicated than that. Um, there can be deep pain that leads to divorce, and I know it's not. I know it's not this simple. But, but a large majority of the divorces in our country at this time are related to uh, unhappiness, right? And we need something better. Now, No matter your circumstance, God is encouraging you towards holiness. The Christi- that's what the Christian life is all about, after all. So what is more important to you, being happy or being holy? For all of us, not just those who are married. What's more, what's more important, being happy or being holy? And Jesus taught that Whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever tries to gain his life in this life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for Jesus' sake will find it. And by that he meant, if you aim for holiness, you'll miss it. Or if you aim for happiness, you'll miss it. If you aim for holiness, eventually you're going to get happiness too. And marriage is no different. It's about your holiness first, not your happiness. I say that like that's how I've treated my marriage. Um, I say that like... That's the way that I, that I always act this out, and it's not, not at all. Um, sure, I have my moments of getting it right, and Beth is really gracious to focus on those moments. But honestly, I'm selfish. I'm lustful. I wanna use my time the way I wanna use my time. Does that sound familiar to anybody else in this room? We all have brokenness when it comes to relationships, when it comes to sex. We all have regrets that need repentance. No one here has arrived. None of us have arrived, have arrived when it comes to this. But here's the thing, and Paul only hints at it here, but this is, how, this is how we have to end this sermon. Your marriage is not defined by your failures, past, present, or future. It's not defined by your failures, is defined by his forgiveness, by his grace. Marriage is about forgiveness, not failures. So no, no matter where you find yourself right now, there is an opportunity to let God's grace change everything. And Paul puts it this way uh, with the Corinthians in verse 13. Look at verse 13. He says, To the rest I say, I, not the Lord. And that, by that, he's not saying this isn't authoritative. It's not just his opinion. He's saying... I'm covering something that Jesus, that Jesus didn't cover. He says, If any woman has, has a husband who is an, an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. and The unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. Then skip to verse 16. He says, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now it would, have been, it would have been very common in Corinth in this day to have mixed marriages at a church plant like this in a, in a pagan city. You know, many became Christians after they were married, even though their spouse didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. Paul's not ta- talking in hypotheticals. He was talking about something that's really happening in this church. But just because the situation was common does not mean that it was an easy one. In fact, to be a Christian in the first century married to an unbeliever, there's probably no more impossible marriage on paper in the world. I mean, com- completely different values, totally different worldview, totally different gods. This is, a, this is a tough situation. There's no way this marriage can make it, right? That's why the Corinthians were saying, just please let us divorce. I mean, it's going be to be better for everybody if we can just get a divorce. But Paul says no. He says, stay, husband, stay with that wife. Wives, stay with that husband. He says that if they leave you, if they divorce you, fine, let them go, but not the other way around. And this, this is important. Paul, Paul does not focus here on what is permissible necessarily. He does give the exception. Look, if they desert you, fine, let them leave. But his focus is not on what is permissible, which is often what we want to focus on. His focus is not what's permissible, but what is possible, even in the most impossible of marriages. So so what gives him this hope? What gives him the hope in a clearly hopeless situation? How can he possibly ask someone to do this, to stay with a spouse like this? Well, simply, it's the grace of God. God's grace, his saving redemptive, mysterious, powerful grace is always at work in your marriage. Always. Paul says your husband, your wife, your children, they might be saved. And In fact, he says in some, in some way they are already accruing benefits of living in the house of a believer. They're already in some way set apart, made holy because they are in, a, in the house where the gospel is a part of someone's life. And he says, don't end your marriage because you think it's beyond redemption. Just think, who knows what could happen? God is working right now in your marriage in ways that you cannot even fathom. Forgiveness is always, always, always possible. And I'm saying that especially, I hope, those who are struggling in their marriage. I hope you hear this. Paul says, don't give up. He says, hold on. Grace is always Freely available, and God is always working to make us holy. Jesus not, He died not simply to save us from sin, but to make us, and this is beautiful, to make us a bride fit for God for eternity. In Ephesians 5, Paul talks about marriage being a picture of his love for the church, his bride. Marriage is meant to be the gospel on display. And he had every right to divorce us. Right? Every sin that can lead to divorce in the Bible, we've done it. Adultery, desertion, abuse, we were God's enemies. But God has not abandoned us. And because of Jesus, we are, we're not simply just friends of God. We are called the spouse of God, the bride of Christ. If God's grace can do that, if, if he can reconcile a cosmically bad marriage... If if he can fix a universe-shattering divorce in the the Garden of Eden because of sin, then what what can he not do? If God can reconcile us to himself, he can certainly reconcile us to one another. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, and and I want to say this, divorce is not the unforgivable sin that keeps on sinning, okay? No matter matter who you are or what you've done, this is redemption, God taking broken things and making, making them beautiful. That's what God's in, the, that's what he's in the business of doing. This is what marriage is about. It's not about you. It's about the good news of Jesus's love for his bride. May we live like this is true.